Brother Ari, good morning. Good morning. <coughs> we uh, carry on in our study in the book of Malachi. The last time we studied Malachi, we looked at how Malachi addresses problems pertaining to worship in the covenant community. Specifically, what we looked at was how it relates to the priests and the priests allowed among the people of God. Today, we're going to hear Malachi address the entirety of the people of Judah and, and address the problem of marriage in the covenant community. So today's topic, today's main title is Marriage and Divorce, and we're covering chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. And oh, apart from that, I want to also, I'm happy and joyful that our church is celebrating three years here at local, as a local church in Covina. So um, may, may we be here serving this area for many years to come for the glory of God and Christ. So I wanted to kind of point that out as well. Yeah. October, beginning of October is when we started. And, uh, and God's been good and faithful to us. Amen? Amen. So today's passage also carries with it a twofold difficulty. The first is that this is one of the most, uh, it's a very difficult passage in the Old Testament scriptures to translate. Uh, if you compare your English translations with other English translations, especially the verses 15 and 16, there are some notable translation differences. Regardless of what major English translation we use, the main thrust of the passage isn't in doubt or isn't obscured. So you'll be fine if you use any major English translation. We will be using, I use the CSV, we also use the ESV here. Um, as we as we usually do, I think that translation translates very well. Um, uh, so we will be sticking with that. If you have other translations, feel free to use that and make note of any differences. It's okay to have easy NIV or the New King James Version or whatever one you're comfortable reading through or with reading with. The important thing is that we get in the Bible and in the Word of God. Amen. The second difficulty we will be encountering this morning is the existential difficulty. That is because these verses we're about to read and study touch on some quite delicate topics. That is because your relationship history or your present relationship are very personal and penetrating to some of us. We hear the prophet speak into these issues of divorce and remarriage. We hear him speak into issues of the kind of people we pursue for marriage, even the importance of guarding the covenant of marriage. It's a very personal issue, and uh, I'm, a, I'm aware of that, and we're going to address these issues because the scriptures tell us to address it. God is speaking to us, and we got to be listening with our ears. God's hand isn't in any way hands off on this topic. His word reaches into every corner and crevice of our Christian lives. Even this week, as I was studying this passage, I was reminded of a quote by the Dutch reformer Abraham Kuyper. And I'm pulling this quote a little out of context, but bear with me. He says in one of his books, lectures on Calvinism, there is not one square inch in which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. The main point that I want to get at with that is that there is no part of our lives that are that's not under the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That involves some of the more sensitive aspects such as marriage, divorce, and remarriage. 
The Lord has things to say about this, so we need eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are humble to receive what God's word says. Amen? Mm. So this is a challenging passage, but at the same time, this is a passage that lifts our eyes and hope of the gospel. We, we got to look towards the gospel, right? Because we all fell. None of us are perfect. All of us are imperfect people. It raises our eyes to the opportunity we have in our marriages. For those who are married, so we'll address that today and next week because we'll carry on until next week this topic. If you are married to glorify God in that relationship in the face of a world that's terribly confused about some of these topics, the world does not understand sometimes. They're very wrong on the topic of marriage. They get it wrong because they're not getting it from the scriptures, from the word of God. Amen. And so they're confused. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's word. We're in Malachi chapter 2, and we're going to be reading six verses from, chapter, from verses 10 through 16. It says, don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has acted treacherously and detestable. Act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob the man who does this, whoever he may be, even the, if he presents an offering to the Lord of armies. This is another thing you do. You are covering the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning, because he no longer respects your offering or receives them gladly from your hands. And you ask, why? Because even though the Lord has been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, you have acted treacherously against her. She was your marriage. She was your marriage partner and your wife by covenant. Didn't God make one and give them a portion of spirit? What is one seeking godly offspring? So watch yourself carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. If he hates and divorces his wife, says the Lord of Israel, God, uh, of God of Israel, he covers his garment with injustice, says the Lord of armies. Therefore, watch yourselves carefully and do not act treacherously. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning asking, Lord, to bless this message, Lord, to speak to the marriages that are that are here, Lord, and for those who are going to be listening to a later time or who are listening to at this time, Lord, and to all of us who are maybe single, will be married one day, Lord, I pray, Lord, that uh, we would ultimately go to your word for guidance, for counsel, Lord, and that we would listen and be heed to your advice, Lord. Be with us this morning. Bless this time, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So if you've been here at Acts for a while, you may know that we're a Reformed Baptist church, and um, you probably heard the word covenant before, you probably heard that word thrown out, covenant, and we're going to a little bit of touch on that topic, on that word, what does that mean, what does that mean, covenant, at one time or another, we are quite fond of that word and, and what it represents, if you're anything like me, you throw out a word in all kinds of contexts without really realizing who understands what it means or not. And sometimes we are guilty of Christianese, right? We talk all these words and people are like, what does that mean? Not, you know, maybe they're not been a Christian for as long as you have, but we gotta explain the words that we talk about. 
The reason we do that and the reason we're so fond of the word covenant is because the scriptures seem to be fond of that word too. The word covenant and the concept of covenant, even if that word is not used, occurs all over the scriptures. It's all in the Bible, the word covenant. We can go back to Genesis and read about the covenant that God made with Abraham. We can go to Exodus and read about the covenant that God makes with Moses and Israel. We can go to 2 Samuel chapter 7 and read about the covenant that God made with David. Or we can go to Jeremiah and Ezekiel and other prophets and read about the new covenant that Jesus inaugurates and fulfills. So covenant is in the Old Testament and even in the New Testament. Covenant is, in, is important to the scripture. It's kind of like the kingdom of God. You know, Christ is talking about the kingdom of God is at hand. It's a very important topic in the Bible. It's central to the fabric and the unity of the Bible. It binds the scriptures together as a unified whole. And in Malachi, the prophet has a few things to say about covenant as well. So in the beginning of chapter 2, Malachi mentioned a covenant with Levi. If we read out, if we read, we've actually heard earlier from Pastor Gerardo and myself. And now in the later half of chapter 2, the prophet again introduces the topic of covenant. In verse 10, he talks about this covenant with the fathers and he accuses the people of Judah of profane, profaning this covenant. In verse 14, he says to the men of Judah, specifically concerning their wives, that she is your companion and your wife by covenant. It says there, by covenant. So covenant has some importance in Malachi, just as it does throughout the scriptures as a whole, and just as it does for us as a church. The word covenant is important. So that raises the obvious question, what does the Bible mean by covenant? What does it mean by the word covenant? What in the world are we talking about when we throw out this term covenant? What does that mean? There's a number of good definitions in, in there, in the literature, but let me offer you a very brief and basic definition. And that, that is covenant is a bond between two or more parties that secures a special relationship. So two people bonded. It's a special relationship. That's what it means, covenant. And the, the idea here is that when God graciously enters into a relationship with a people in the scriptures, he then secures that relationship by the means of covenant. That's what he calls it, covenant. He reaches down to a people who have done nothing to earn his grace and his favor. What have we earned? What have we, what have we merited? Nothing, right? He comes down to us. He makes promises to commit himself to them for their good and for their glory. It's for God's, for our good, and for His glory. Amen? Amen? He promises, I will be your God, and you will be my people, and I will dwell among you. That statement is the essence of the covenant promise God makes among His people. So, it's a bond of fellowship and communion, and for us, belonging. We belong to a God who loves us and who reached out to us. Amen? Covenant reminds us God's gracious initiative when we were dead in our sins and, trans and trespasses. And covenant anchors us when we brush shoulders with the fall and with our own sin in our lives because we will fail once and again and again, right? We will always be sinning and sometimes that's why we live in this earth, right? Because none of us can keep perfection on this earth. We're going through the process of sanctification. God is working in our lives day by day, making us more like Christ in His image. And it is a work of a lifetime as we live on this earth. 
So listen to what the confession, uh, I mean, I'll point to the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 7 says, uh, has to say about the covenant. The distance between God and the creature is so great that although reasonable creatures do owe obedience to him unto, as, they, as their creator, yet they could never have any fruition as their blessedness and reward, but by some voluntary condensation of God's part, which he had been pleased to express by way of covenant. Does that make kind of sense? God comes down and reaches out to us because we're dead in our sins and transgressions. If God doesn't come to you, you're not going to go to God. Right? That's how it is. We come to God because he calls us. Because he has changed us. Because he has made us be born again. And he's done a work in our lives. Amen? Amen. Thank God for his grace and his mercy and his love that pursues us. So the idea here in the confession is that God first condescends to his people. We couldn't on our own volition get up to God because of our sin and our fallen nature. Does that make sense? So God condescends to his people and then by covenant, once he establishes that relation, he secures that relationship with his people. God is the one who secures it. He makes it true and final. So this is a covenant by but in a covenant relationship, the people of God, you and me, are also given a responsibility. Do we have anything to do once we're saved? I mean, obviously the saving is done by God, but do we have... Now what do we do after we're saved? Do we have any responsibility? We do, right? Our responsibility is pretty simple. It's not complicated. So if you tell someone who's a Christian, a brand new Christian, what do I got to do now that I've, that I've been coming to Christ and that I'm a born-again Christian and I love God and I want to seek Him and follow Him, what do I do? It is our responsibility to respond to God's gracious initiative through faith. You ask the faith that God, and that faith is a gift of God as well. We're called to respond by faith and to submit to God out of an obedience that springs from faith. Amen? Yes. God initiates the covenant entirely of his own accord. That is God. God alone saves. He's the only one who saves. Doesn't not your pastor, not your mom, not your dad, not your uncle, not your cousin. It is only God who saves, not a priest, nobody, but God. Amen? Amen. God initiates the covenant entirely of his own accord. By, his, by the grace of his Holy Spirit, we, we respond by submitting ourselves to his lordship. God is Lord of your life. He's king and Lord, and we submit to his lordship. At its heart, this is what covenant is. It, this helps orient us to the verse of Malachi 2. Verse, let's go to verse 10. Let's read verse 10. Because it's important that we understand what covenant is when we're talking about marriage and, uh, and the topic of marriage and divorce. Have we not all one father? Have we not all one father? Has not one God created us? Or it says, don't all of us have one father? Didn't one God create us? Why then do we act treacherously against one another, profaning the covenant of our Fathers, profaning the covenant of our fathers. Now, as we're going to see as we work through this passage in Malachi, the prophet has a lot to say about the marriage covenant. The marriage covenant. Once we move past verse 10 and we get to 11 through 16, that's what Malachi primarily addresses, which he's talking about the marriage covenant. The marriage covenant isn't a, isn't a divine human covenant in the sense of covenant that I use when talking. So it's not the same as what God has done with us and the church, right? It's a little different. 
but it mirrors it. It's in, it's, it is the primary metaphor, the, the marriage of, of, of all the people here on earth. It's a metaphor and illustration used in scripture that God gives his people to picture his divine human covenant of grace that God makes. Does that make sense? Marriage is a, is a reflection of, of God and the church, yes. of us. That's why we, as people of God, as Christians, we are we hold marriage with a tight fist. We don't, we're not going to uh, compromise on that topic, right? Nonetheless, before Malachi discusses the importance of marriage, of the marriage covenant, he begins in verse 10 by rooting the marriage covenant in the covenant of grace. The covenant with our fathers. If we don't understand this bedrock of the covenant of grace, and we don't understand that marriage is intended to bear witness to the divine covenant that God makes with his people, then we don't then we just won't appraise marriage and as highly as we ought and everything God ordains for marriage. Do you guys get that? If you don't understand the covenant that God has made with his people, with you and with I, the church, you're not going to understand marriage. And you're going to not think of it highly. And you're going to think marriage is just something two people getting together and having kids. And it's nothing, no big deal. But it is a big deal because God has said it to be a big deal. Amen? Yeah. That's what the culture does not understand. And that's why they're, they affirm gay marriage. They affirm all kinds of things that are going against God and his will. This apparently was a problem that Malachi addresses in his own day and his own time. Their first problem was that they lost sight. So they lost sight of the gravitas or the importance of God's covenant with them. When you lose focus on what God has done, the God, that's why the gospel is essential. If you, focus, if you lose focus on the gospel... You're going to drift. You're going to go lost to the side. We read about that in the opening five verses of Malachi, where God says, and I actually preach on this. It says, uh, I have loved you. Does he not say that? I have loved you. He's affirming that God loves the people. They're his people. And they ask, the people ask, how have you loved us? So the fact that they're asking that, how have they loved, how have you loved us? They forgot the covenant initiation of God, which he made on his own free will with all his people. Because they forgot that when then they lost sight of how that covenant was intended to root them and then form the marriage covenant. Right? Sometimes we, we're going through a trial, a difficulty, a, tri a tribulation, some hardship, and we're asking, God, do you love me? Do you care about me? Are you, are you there? But then you forget didn't he die for you on the cross? He gave it all for you, alright? So I think we need to be mindful of that, right? Bigger picture. Amen? So Malachi opens by asking the rhetorical questions, but getting back at the heart of who they are as a people of God. And he asks them, have we not all one father? He asks that question. Have we not all one father? There's a dialogue between God and his people. Have we not all one Father? And has not God created us? Isn't God the maker and the creator of everything, of all peoples? Right? These are covenantal questions at their core that God is recalling among the people of Israel. It's a, he's talking to them about the covenant. 
God isn't calling to mind some rhetoric, <laughs> some generic reality that God is Father and Creator of all that He has made. Because God is the Creator of everything, right? But He's asking, He's talking to them about covenant, and, and we're going to make this a little more clear right now. It's popular to hear the notion that everyone is a child of God by virtue of creation. Have we not heard that say all the time? We hear that all the time, right? Oh yeah, everybody's a child of God. Everybody's a son and daughter of God. We hear that all the time in culture. And people, maybe your friends, your family, co-workers, someone says that, right? Is that true? Or is that not true? Is everyone a child of God? All seven billion people on earth are brothers and sisters of one another? That's not the reality that Malachi is concerned with right off the bat. Instead, he's concerned with covenant. Again, the word covenant. He's, he's tapping into the covenant reality that God, that when God secures and gathers a peculiar people to himself, he becomes their father and they, his son and, or daughters, in a unique, special, and covenantal way. Amen? Does that make sense? So too, when Malachi says that one God created us, he's calling to mind the covenant reality that God's people were created and formed into a nation, the nation of Israel, God's people, amen? Not merely the general reality that God is creator of all things, though that's true too. So God, everyone's a creature, creator, God made everybody, but he has a special relationship with certain people, right? Like the church. We're the church of God. We're his bride, Amen. We're different than the world. So, then the point is this. In the opening questions in verse 10, it is to remind is remind God's people, which is Israel, and us. Because he's speaking to us today as well, right? He speaks to them and to us. Who we belong to. Do you remember that? Do you know who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? To Christ. Amen? Isn't that amazing that we belong to God or His bride? We're his people. Amen? And let's not forget that. If you're in Christ, that is a big thing. That is, a, that is we're, we're reconciled with God the Father because of what Christ has done on the cross. The gospel, the good news. Uniquely in light of the covenant that was made long ago, God created Israel as a nation when he called them to himself at Sinai, at Sinai some thousand years before Malachi arrived. God related to them as a father when he gathered and secured that covenant relationship. Israel was called to respond in faith and obedience to this covenant bond that God graciously initiated of his own free will with his people. So here's the problem. Here's the big problem. How do the people of God in Malachi's day respond to this? How do they respond to this? And not with faith, but with faithlessness. Do we sometimes respond to God with faithlessness? We don't believe his word and his promises and what he's told us. We act sometimes faithless, do we not? Yes. Or is it just me? <laughs> that word occurs all over this passage. Faithlessness. Faithlessness. They profane this covenant. How exactly do they profane this covenant? By being faithless to one another. So they're faithless to one another. Therefore, they're faithless to God as well. That's what it says. In this passage, Malachi draws a connection between the horizontal relationships among the people of God, particularly how a husband is called to relate to his wife. And, I mean, if you're married, you know it's not easy, right? It's hard, right? Relationships, even any kind of relationship is hard. 
But imagine a marriage living together day in, day out, every day. It's gonna be there's gonna be issues that are gonna arise. So the husband is called to relate to his wife, but also the vertical relationship with God Himself. God says to Judah that your faithlessness, specifically in the covenant of marriage, which is intended to mirror and image the covenant I make with you, actually profanes the covenant of our Father. So, however your marriage is right now, might be a mirror of how your relationship with God. If your marriage isn't really well, most likely your relationship with God isn't going to be well as well. That's what we're hearing, we're seeing here. You can't say, oh, I have a really great relationship with God, but my marriage is all messed up. You know, it doesn't work that way. Actually profanes the covenant of your father. He says that your approach to marriage, your approach to marriage reveals your heart towards the covenant of grace, your covenant that you have with God, that God made with you. Because you're faithless to the covenant of marriage and everything that I intend for the covenant of marriage, you are thus being faithless to the covenant of our fathers. That's what he's saying right here in scripture. God makes a covenant with his people going back to what I said in the preface, in the very introduction, in the very beginning. His call on our lives is total. His call on our lives is total, 100%. Nothing, including marriage, is hermeneutically sealed off from God's covenant call on our lives. That's what it includes. Now, we're going to unpack the problems with Judah's treatment of the marriage covenant as we walk through this text. The undergirding problem here before us is that Judah didn't appreciate that when God binds his people by covenant, he calls for every area of our lives to be taken captive under his lordship. Every area, all of it, everything is God is calling you to take captive under his lordship. Nothing is off limits, especially the marriage covenant. That is the big thing for God. Amen? Amen? So if you're married, pay attention. And if you're not married, pay attention because you might one day be married, right? So God's big idea is God's faithfulness in the covenant of grace calls us to be faithfulness in the covenant of marriage. Does that make sense? Faithfulness in the covenant of grace, you and God, but also by his grace, but also faithfulness in the covenant of marriage between a man and a, and a woman, husband and wife. Both of those together correlate. So in other words, how we treat marriage is a gospel issue. It's a gospel. It's a good, it's a good, the good news issue. As we work through this passage, we're going to see that God addresses three big issues pertaining to the covenant of marriage. One, he addresses faith in their pursuit of the covenant of marriage. And that's probably the only point we'll cover today. And we'll continue next week with he addressed the faithlessness towards the covenant of marriage itself. And he called them towards faithfulness to uphold the covenant of marriage. So let's handle the first point because we do have the Lord's Supper today. And I want to do that as well. We want to go through that. Um, the first one, he addresses faith. Listness in the pursuit of the covenant of marriage. He addresses faithlessness in the pursuit of the covenant of marriage. Malachi, if we were to work through this passage, identifies two concrete problems in the way the people of God are approaching marriage in his day and age. And it's still happening at this very day today. It's not just happening back then, it's happening today. So, the, the first is their pursuit of spouses outside the people of God. 
the pursuit of spouse outside for people of God. And actually, as I study this and read this and, and, and I'm preparing for the sermon, it's speaking to me because I'm single. I don't have a wife. So it's speaking. But you guys, if there's anybody here single, it's speaking to you as well um, because this is important. This is God's word, right? And you are one single, and you're going to understand what God is speaking to us. So someone might say, can someone who is a Christian marry or be with a non-Christian? And the answer is no, and we will address it. Why? Through scripture. Um, the second problem is that they're divorcing their lawful wives. So that those who are married, they're divorcing their lawful wives, and they're going to pursue non-Christians. The pagans, the, the, the people <coughs> that God did not want them to mingle with. Now, these two issues that Malachi raises and alerts the people of God are very closely related and intertwined. You're going to see how. Historically, Malachi is confronting a scenario where many men were abandoning their lawful wives. They were sending them away with a certificate of divorce. They were saying, bye, I don't, you know, no more. I don't want to be with you. So that they could pursue marriage to a foreign woman. Think about that. How bad was that? Those who stood outside the covenant community and worshipped and served other gods, they've been sought by the men of Judah who were engaging in a practice like this. A practice in which a union with a foreign woman put one at an economic or social or political advantage among the nations who were more powerful than Judah. The nation of Judah was still under the captivity of the king of Persia. So they were doing this with the self-interest. And if I marry someone from a foreign, I might come off a little bit better, right? Um, it's also probable that some of some in the covenant community who hadn't been married were still pursuing marriage outside of the covenant community. So if you were a single pastor, young guy, you were like, oh, I like that woman over there. She's not, a, you know, she's not part of Israel, but hey, she looks good. I want to go after her, right? That's what they were doing, um, which a lot of people do today as well. So on the other hand, others who had no intentions already... Um, so in other words, even in the isolation from each other, both issues that Malachi addressed in this passage are problematic in of themselves. If you're married, you're going to leave your wife, you're going to go after another one. Or if you're single and you're looking after another non-believing spouse. We're going to begin this first point by treating the issue that Malachi raises. That is pursuing marriage with someone who stands outside of the visible people of God. Is that allowed? Is that something you should do? Is that wise? Is that something that you should pursue? Maybe you're listening and you're dating somebody who's not a Christian and you're like, should I continue this? Should I stop? What do I do? You know, I mean, you build a connection, you build a bond and then it's harder to break, right? Because you start um, loving that person or, you know, that's what you think you do. You start having a connection with them. So that is pursuing marriage with someone who stands outside of the visible people of God. Read in verse 11 where God rebukes the people of Judah for marrying the daughter of a foreign God. Let's read verse 11. Many nations will join themselves to the Lord that day and become my people. I will dwell. Oh, wrong, wrong one. The, the, the little wind here blew my passage away says in verse 11, Judah has acted treacherously and a detestable act has been done in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's sanctuary which he loved and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Foreign god. He married the daughter of a foreign god. Hmm. Not good. God is not pleased with that. 
So this Malachi tells that this is that it's faithlessness towards the covenant of our fathers. It's an abomination, something that God hates. It's a profaning of the sanctuary of the Lord. That's a strong language through and through, right? It's pretty strong, right? What God's saying? Pretty direct. Pretty bold. Now, the issue here isn't that men are marrying women of different ethnicity or women who are citizens of different geopolitical states. That's not the issue. We're not talking about um, that issue. God's com complaint, in other words, has nothing to do with ethnicity, race, or national allegiances in the sense of what we think about that today. Is that talking about that? His complaint is that the men of Judah or the men of the church today, if we want to bring it to today, were marrying unapologetic idol worshipers. It's like, I'm going to go marry this worldly person who is worshiping the devil, right? Or just in bad things, right? People who have no intention of leaving their allegiances to other gods. God's concern is not the holiness of his name. No, God's concern is for the holiness of his name and the holiness of his people who bear witness to the holiness of his name. You shouldn't go and marry uh, someone who's in a false religion because why would you do that? That is unbiblical. They're worshiping a false god, an idol. They're being in rebellion to God's word. So you want to mingle with someone who is of the same mindset and is the same and they and they love God and they seek God, right? Amen? Because God is concerned for the holiness of his name and the holiness of his people, which is you and I, right? He loves us, he cares about us, who bear witness to the holiness of his name. So to sign off on a union with a foreign woman who worships and serves an idol is to invite rampart idolatry among his holy set-apart people and eventually spiritual decay. It's going to go bad, right? It's going to go from worse to bad, or from bad to worse. That seems to be part of what's happening as Malachi writes. This is one of the big issues that led King Solomon. You know who King Solomon is? We're mindful of it. He wrote Proverbs. We actually just preached on Proverbs not too long ago. Um, several hundred years prior, and as a consequence, Israel into spiritual idolatry and eventually into exile. In 1 Kings, after the book opens, King Solomon, about 500 years before Malachi writes, had a lot of going for him. He was a very smart, wise Man, was he not? Because he asked God for wisdom, and God was pleased to give him wisdom and give him riches. So when he began to reign as king of Israel, King Solomon had the blessing of presiding over a united kingdom. His kingdom was united when he became king. His heart was initially set on the Lord, and the Lord blessed him with wisdom, and Solomon got to preside over the construction and the dedication of the temple in Jerusalem. When we read all about the amazing events in the life of Solomon, we're pretty amazed. We're like, wow, that's pretty awesome what God is doing in the life of Solomon, right? When we get to chapters 10 and 11 in 1 Kings, we begin to see the cracks in the kingdom form. Direct violation of what a king was supposed to do from Deuteronomy chapter 17, we, where, all the, where 
where all that is spelled out, King Solomon began to acquire many horses. He just started getting horses. And it may not seem like a big deal, except that Deuteronomy chapter 17 says you shouldn't do that. God says, don't do that. And what did he do? He goes and does it, right? He then acquired a lot of gold. Again, it may not seem like a big deal, except that Deuteronomy chapter 17 says you shouldn't do that. God is saying, don't do that. And what he does, he goes and does that, right? And then he's, he's also supposed, he wasn't also supposed to uh, acquire many wives. He wasn't supposed to do that. Listen to what the narrative tells us in Solomon. Let's go to 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 11. We're almost done. First Kings chapter 11, we're going to read verses 1 through 8. For there, say amen. 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 Alright, it says, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women. Whoop, that's a problem right there, right? Loved many foreign women. Along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonite, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives. Wow. 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. Yikes. And his wives turned away his heart. And when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God. And was the heart of David his father. For Solomon went after Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonites, and after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. So Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord. As David his father had done, then Solomon built a high place for Shemas, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. Big problem, right? He's got to please his wife. As a, as a husband, you want to please your wife, but you want to please God first. Amen? Amen. So not only did Solomon acquire many wives, which was a problem in light of the Deuteronomy chapter 17 mandate, also the creation ordinance, because God said one man and one woman, and they will become one flesh, not one man and a thousand women, right? As he was doing that. But he also acquired many foreign wives who worshiped and served other gods, who eventually turned his heart away from the true God of Israel. Again, the issue that Malachi raises has nothing to do with marrying someone who looks different or speaks different than you. That's not the point. That's not the problem. That's never condemned in Scripture. The issue is marrying someone who worships an entirely different God or who has little to no regard for the God of Scriptures, of the Bible. That is the problem right there. The Bible teaches us that when that happens, all sorts of problems follow and come after that. It affects the spiritual union that a married couple is supposed to share. It's a spiritual union, more than and apart from a physical one. 
It affects the call to raise up godly offering. How will you raise your children if one of you worships God and the other one worships Molech? Right? It's not going to work. Which is concerned in Malachi verse 15. Let's read verse 15 of chapter 2. It says there. Didn't God make them one and give them a portion of spirit? What is one? What is the one seeking godly offspring? We want to have godly offspring, godly family, godly kids. So watch yourselves carefully so that no one acts treacherously against the wife of his youth. From the examples that we have in scripture, specifically Solomon, it seems to erode the gospel conviction of the believing spouse. This is the first issue that Malachi raises with the people of God. The looking outside of the covenant community. we looking out in the world to find somebody. And sometimes it's hard because in the church there isn't someone who's there, right? But you got to wait on the Lord, pray, and, and wait that God will bring someone to your, to your fort, to be front, before you, right? So that you can be equally yoked and not be unequally yoked. So that's the point, the first point of today's message that... Um, the looking outside of the covenant community for marriage and in the words of Paul becoming unequally yoked, that's the first issue in regards to marriage and divorce. Uh, I'm going to end the sermon here, but in a couple weeks, or next week, I will continue on this, this topic here and we will talk about the next two points, which I will end with and just let you guys remember on them. So that way, if you want to read on this next week and really meditate on it and think about it, um, it'll be good. So next time we're going to address the faithlessness towards the covenant of marriage itself, the faithlessness, and then he's going to we're going to talk about the how God is calling them towards faithfulness to uphold the covenant of marriage. So we'll really be diving deep into the topic of marriage next week. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we come before you, Lord, giving you thanks for our Lord, um, just the institution of marriage being a reflection and a mirror and an image of. The grace that you've given to us by loving us, by pursuing us, Lord, by dying for us on the cross. And, Lord, making that covenant with your church, Lord, we are your bride, Lord. We are your sons and daughters, Lord. And I pray, Lord, that we would be remindful of the gospel, Lord, of what you've done for us on the cross, Lord. And whatever situation we find ourselves in, whatever hardship, tribulation, pain, uh, we may be reminded that you love us, that you care us, Lord. And, and that you are there for us, Lord. And that we may be able to go to you, Lord, in prayer and into your word, Lord, to be able to... Um, hear from you, Lord. So I pray, Lord, that we would uh, continue on this service, worshiping you, Lord, and praising your name, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.